I'm going to invite you to Romans chapter 2 today. Romans chapter 2 is where we're going to be uh, in an uh, important passage of Scripture. And I know I've already gotten some flack about today's title, uh, Be Spiritually Disturbed. Uh, that's not a common theme for us, <laughs> just so you know. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what it is, a little bit of Halloween in me. I don't know what that's about, but uh, we, I, we don't, I don't celebrate that. But, but to, to think about being spiritually disturbed is not something you walk into church, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to make this church my home, right? So, so if you're new to ABC, just know. Um, in the beginning of Romans, this is the first few chapters of Romans are, is a fairly uncomfortable section of Scripture, but there's there's some importance to it. It's not it's not intended to disturb you, just to leave you there. Okay, it's gonna as we go through this passage of Scripture, it's gonna build within us something great that Jesus wants to do. But but to help us understand why I, I chose such an interesting title, let me let me just start with an illustration. Um, there there was a, a a book recently written called Resilient by a, a Christian counselor. And in the book, one of the things that he did is he interviewed a, a counselor at a, at a university. And one of the things that the counselor from the university said that was interesting about younger people coming into the universities today, he said uh, their, their social and emotional maturity is about equivalent to a, what a 12-year-old would be just a generation ago. And, and I'm not saying, you know, that to, to say, and that's every young person on the planet. I'm not saying that that's our young people here. We got great young people in our church. I'm just, I'm just repeating what they said, okay? They just, it was an interesting, they began to speculate as to what those reasons were for the developmental delay of what they're seeing in, in young people going into universities today. And, and part of what they were dancing around was the idea of experience that permitted them the opportunity to maturity. Uh, today, we have so many things available at our fingertips that a lot of times you'll know even with young people today, when you were, uh, if you're a little bit older and, and you thought about turning, you know, the age of 16, you couldn't wait to go out and get your driver's license and go explore the world. And now you see in young people today, there's just this delay that they're getting a little older and older before they even take that step because a lot of what they want to experience in life just comes straight to their fingertips. And so with that, there's a, a maybe a lack of, of just getting out there with some certain experiences in life, but whatever it is, um, there's this delay to today compared to a generation ago and just the experiential development of people that's affecting uh, their, their social and uh, emotional interaction. And, and maybe, maybe a part of that would be parenting, right? And think about um, parents sometimes just want to do, do your best for kids. And a part of that, you insulate them and protect them. And they don't get to learn by experience and making some mistakes sometimes. And I'm not saying that's you specifically as a parent, okay? But, but I am saying that there, there's just something about being able to get out there and mess up a little bit, figure some things out on your own without someone just telling you on Google how to think, right? You get to, you get to process through that on your own and maturity develops with that. And, and in relation to that, I think in our spiritual lives, we can, we can stunt ourselves spiritually by doing the same thing. Like sometimes we think about in our own spiritual development, I need to find a place that makes me feel good about me, my best life now, help me to improve me and give me the self-help talk to inspire my life. Don't say anything difficult. We just want to make this all just, just sugar-coated, right? And, and Paul takes a different approach in Romans. <laughs> he 
He, in, in the beginning of Romans, he sets this, this tone for what we can experience in our relationship with God very powerfully. Uh, first, first few verses of Romans all the way to verse 16 and 17, he, he talks about the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed in power, the dunamis of God, the dynamite of God in your life made known. And it's, it's an incredible thought. And then, and then from there, he wants to develop within us what that looks like for the power of the gospel to be lived in our lives. But he doesn't start with just the sugarcoating. <laughs> he starts with the disruption of where we are spiritually. Sort of like this. If, if you want to plant a garden, you want it to be a solid garden, you've got to disrupt the soil in order to get the seed in the ground for it to flourish. And this is what Paul's doing in the first uh, few chapters of Romans. As it starts in, in verse 18, he tells us, uh, as he talks about the gospel of God revealed and God's righteousness revealed, he then says, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed, right? And that's just, that is not an easy word to swallow. You like to, we like to think about God as a great loving God, and, and sometimes we always like to consider God in, in his wrath or his justice. But in order for God to be good, he, he must be both. For a God to, to look at the sin of the world and choose not to do anything about that, we would look at that God and say, you, you, you are not a good God because you do not act justly. So you need the justice of God and the love of God in, in order to experience really the fullness of, of God's goodness. And he goes on in verse 18 and he starts to explain to us this disruption that is necessary to understand within our soul so we get a correct perspective of who we are in, in light of who God is. A lot of times as people, we like to, uh, to check our condition by comparing ourselves to one another. But Paul's reminding us in these, these few verses but that life is not about comparing your goodness to other people. But rather seeing who you are in light of who God is. Because one day you'll meet him face to face. And he is the ultimate judge. And he is holy. And he is perfect. And what are you going to say to a God like that? And in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he starts to walk us through the types of people uh, that need to have that disruption within our soul. And he begins with the irreligious and communicating in verse 18 to verse 32 and recognizing uh, who God is and why that's important. And then he gets into uh, the, the moral people in verse uh, 1 to, to verse 11. And then today he's going to talk to the religious people. And, and the religious people will tend to look at the other two groups and be like, well, you know, irreligious, it's obvious that God's, you know, going to judge them. They don't have any care with, of God. And, and then, but the moral people and religious people could look at that and say, you know, well, they're moral, but they still don't have it all figured out. Well, look at me, though, because I, I show up to church on Sunday, right? I obey the rules. Not only am I moral, but I'm religious. And Paul's saying it doesn't matter who you are and where you come from. All of us need to have a, a healthy understanding of who God is to allow our souls to, to come before God transparently and that disruption to, to take place in order for God to build something new. And, and so point number one in your notes, if you have this this morning, Paul starts off, he's going to transition from the moral into the religious here, but he reminds us of this, we are all accountable to God. We are all accountable to God. Verse 12, look at this. He says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. 
And Paul's starting off with really these two aspects of people. There, there are the Jewish people and the Gentile people. That's it. There's two, two worldviews he's, he's approaching here with us. There's Jew and Gentile. Jews receive the law from God, and anyone who isn't Jew did not receive the law of God. But he's going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But these, these two people groups, he's sort of separating us in. Those that without the law will perish without the law. Those that have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, he's not saying to these people groups there's two uh, different standards by which you're going to be judged. We're, we're all coming before a holy God, and we're all going to be judged by that holy God. But he is saying between those people groups that there, there, there is no one who is not going to be held accountable before God, and he's going to show that to us here in just a moment. All of us, regardless of where we come from, have an accountability before God. Now, those who have more, there, there's more to be expected, right? Like the, the more you possess in, in life, the, the more things you are accountable for. And the Jewish people had, had the law given to them, so there's, there's accountability that comes with that, different than, than the Jewish people, but, but all of us are going to be held accountable before God. God. And verse 12 becomes that, that breakdown of how this passage will lay itself out. And in fact, verses 14 to 16 talk about the, the first half of this verse, all who have perished without the law. And, and, and then verses 17 to 24, we'll talk about the second half uh, of this verse, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And then he gives us this final wrap up in verse 25 to 29. But, but then verse 13, he explains to us why. He says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, I know the tendency in reading a verse like that coming from a religious worldview, a religious person would look at that and say, see, see, we got the law. We, we're, we're better than the person that, that's irreligious and the person that's moral. We, we have the law and we can live the law and we can show to God that we're worthy of his love and he, he can save us, right? It's this demonstration. You can look at, look at those verses and maybe reach that conclusion, but I would just encourage us, keep reading Romans, right? If we were to take a test on this and I were to say, I'm going to give you a little cheat here, um, I would encourage you just to go ahead and read Romans 3.10. Or, or Romans 3.23. 3.10 tells us no one is righteous. <laughs> or 3.23 tells us and all of us have sinned. So in, in this passage, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. Paul's got, later going to reveal to us that, and, and in fact, that's absolutely no one. There is no one who is justified before the Lord by living out this law because it is an impossibility. We, we have all sinned. So point number two then, in recognizing we're accountable before God, Paul identifies how in verse 14, this is the second point in your notes, our conscience holds us accountable. Our conscience holds us accountable. You didn't know if you're going to be in a spelling bee today, but the word conscience is con and science, right? With knowledge is what it's saying that God has intrinsically given to us the, the, the image of God within us. And so we have this, this moral compass that helps us direct in life and, and understand, make, make wiser decisions. Um, verse 14, he goes on, and he, he says it like this. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do... What the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the works of the law is written on their hearts with their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or, or even excuse them on that day when according to the gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. 
Paul's saying, by, by nature, they're doing what the law requires. By nature, they're reflecting uh, the holiness of God within their conscience because God has made them in, the Im- in, in his image. And we have this general idea of, of right from wrong, not knowing a lick about Jewish law. We live a, a moral law. We obey a moral law, which indicates that there may be a moral lawgiver. I, I, I've talked to us about the importance of this when we started in, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, that, that the, this idea is such an important framework when you, when you interact in an atheistic, agnostic world. If you have people that, that label themselves that way, you call them friends, you have opportunity to converse with them, uh, this is such an important basi- basis for, for logic, con- conscience, right? with, with logic or knowledge uh, when you're interacting with people because uh, th- this is the identity of who God is being realized in our life. Many people that claim uh, agnosticism or atheism don't realize that in order to live that out, they're actually borrowing from a Christian worldview. Because if they walk in life without a God, and by the way, in our culture today, that's probably the, the growing religion. I know people typically don't think about atheism or agnosticism necessarily as a religion, but what you believe ultimately shapes what you do, and that in itself is a religion. It's a belief system. And, and when we interact with people that hold to that foundation, it gives us a beautiful basis to identify for them where they're acknowledging the idea of a creator. Because without a creator, without a God who designed all of this, uh, to, to operate as if today would be like tomorrow is illogical in that worldview. An intelligent design suggests an intelligent designer. If this just randomly happened, then life would be chaotic. But when you look at life, it's got order and meaning. Not only that, but we, it has got morality, right? Like we, we expect people will generally live with this idea of right from wrong, good over evil. We want good to triumph. How, how can we claim anything to be good unless there be someone who, uh, moral lawgivers that gives us what goodness is? If we just randomly came into existence, who cares? You're just stardust bumping into stardust. In fact, not only do we hold to morality, but we also hold to value. As people, we want to be important. But if there is no God, there is nothing more valuable than you than a rock outside or a dog down the street. It's just one evolved one way and you evolved a different way. But nothing makes you more special because you're just stardust. But we don't live that way. We live as if there's logic, as if there's purpose, as if there's meaning, as if there is value. That comes from a creator. And this is what Paul's saying in verse 14. By nature, they're living these things out from the Lord. And that God has even given us a conscience that recognizes it. That conscience bears witness. Before there was law, you think in the Old Testament, before Moses, what did the people do? (laughs) There was no Jewish law before Moses. But God gave us conscience and it reflected the goodness of who he is. Your conscience will keep you from doing foolish things and your conscience will make you feel guilty when you do foolish things. But your conscience does not save you. It reflects the holiness of God, but it does not save your soul from the destruction that that sin brings. And, and And then he says this in verse 16, God judges the secrets. Religion is good at masking who we really are. And it's been said, reputation is who people think you are, but your character is who you really are. You can't hide your character from God. 
Mark, Mark Twain said it like this once. Um, we're all like the moon. We, we all have a dark side we don't want anyone to see. But God sees it. God sees it. And what are you going to do about it? See, verse 13, when you, when you think and consider that idea, the, verse 13 doesn't become a, a passage to liberate you and encourage you. It, it becomes a, a passage that haunts you. Listen, listen to it. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. That's not me. And if we're being honest, that's not you. That's a little disruptive to the soul. But that's what Paul's saying. These opening chapters are uncomfortable. And just for a moment as you go through these chapters for the well-being of your soul, can, you, can we be okay with being uncomfortable? Because what God wants to do from us in, in, in the chapters that, that follow is to create something new, something healthy, something powerful in your life. Well, they say it takes a summer to build a squash, but it takes a lifetime to build an oak tree. And that's what God desires to do in you, not to just give you these, these superficial words that just give you these positive feelings, but to understand that before God, you can be honest with where you are in the brokenness of your soul because God wants to do a greater work in that. There is a reason for which Jesus came. So point number three, then, in your notes. God's law also holds us accountable. God's law holds us accountable. And this is where you see him transition now, not just from the, the idea of, of moral living with the conscience, but he, all, he starts to, to dialogue over the religious people. And, and he goes on in verse 17, he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Let me, I know that's an incomplete thought, but let me just, let me just stop there for a moment. Um, Paul's recognizing that religious people, they're, they're, they're people that can, can often boast. And, and, and they're boasting because they, they see themselves as a proud people, right? Like, um, well, we're better than the irreligious and we're better than the moral because we've got the law. We're God's special people. That's, that's how they're describing themselves. They're, they start to boast in that, that identity. And religion tends to do one of two things to people. It'll lead you to a place of, of pride or despair, uh, despair because you, you, you're honest with, with the law and what it says and you recognize you can't perform that way or it leads you to pride because you really do buy into it. You think, you think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Look at me. Our family has it all together. We're better than them. And in this verse, he's talking about the, the boasting that we, we find in that, this pride that, that builds us up. And that's what Paul wants to disrupt, to recognize it's not about your performance. And they take these identities that, that create this boasting, this idea of, of being a Jew and, and law. They're God's special people. The chosen people. The ones that receive the, the commandments from the Lord. Doesn't that make them special? Reminds me of, of Deuteronomy um, 7, verse 7, where God told Israel, I didn't choose you because you were great. In fact, you were the smallest of all peoples. What he's saying is, look, it's not about showing how great you are, but, but rather by choosing the smallest people, it's about showing the greatness of who I am through you. Yet they, they boast in this identity, and if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. Like church attendance or baptism or your, your Bible knowledge, and those things are important, but they're not an end to themselves. 
I've heard some people say, you know, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian since birth. And can I just tell you, there's nobody in this room that was born a Christian. It's not even possible. If, you, if, that, if that kind of statement ever comes from your mouth, I, I can tell you, you don't understand what it means to be a Christian, right? There's no one in this room that was ever born a Christian. In order to become a Christian, you have to be reborn in, in your walk with Jesus. Like, I'm glad if you grew up in a Christian home and you find some identity there and you enjoy that and you want to talk about being born that in, in, into a Christian home, but, but the way to Jesus is the same for everyone and it's got to come through the cross of Christ. There is this this rebirth. And so our our identity isn't in these things, but our substance belongs to Christ. In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus said this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus is saying it's not the scriptures themselves, but it's the point of what the scriptures contain. And all of it is driven to, to your walk in Jesus. God isn't calling you to religion, but to relationship. And to understand why we need it. And so in verse 19, he goes on, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. He goes on further in saying, even worse, um, sometimes religiously we can buy into it so much that we start to think we are the answer. We're the light for the blind. We're the one that can help you uh, be saved and recognize the day. And the, the most dangerous place for our soul, I would say, is religion. Because what religion teaches us is how to treat the symptoms without healing the problem. And this is what Paul is is driving at in this passage to disrupt us in that place to recognize it's not religion that heals, but, but, but Christ alone. God doesn't call us to, to religion, but, but relationship. And so in verse 20, as an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the, the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And so they, they're acknowledging these religious teachers that they've got the knowledge and, and the truth. And, and one of the problems they're identifying, again, it's, it's this mistake of, of thinking you're spiritual because you have information. But rather, what you lack is transformation. It's, it's, it becomes this form of legalism without spiritual life. But rather, what we should do within our, our heart is look at a passage like this and ask the question, Lord, how can I surrender my life, my heart to be forgiven and healed? The problem isn't our behavior. The problem is our heart. Your behavior is simply an indication of something deeper that's taking place in your life. Verse 21, he then goes on in in recognizing this as they talk about having the law and the knowledge and truth. He starts to just ask them reflective questions to consider about their own life. These individuals who claim to be the enlightened ones with all of this. He says, you, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you yourself steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. And we know enough about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and Matthew 5 to recognize it's, it's not just about the letter of the law, but the intent of the heart. And the Jews had 613 commandments. 
But to suggest to you that 613 commandments would legislate the immorality of all of humanity is a farce. I don't think there's a limit to the amount of laws we could create to try to wrangle in the depravity of the human heart. I think it just happens that the Old Testament has 613 commandments, but the commandments we would have to write in order to get our lives to submit, and even then we know won't be successful, I think could be unending. And Jesus taught us that much in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about the law. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say you have lusted in your heart. You've already done it. You who, I, I tell you, you shall not steal. You, you who have coveted in your heart, you've already done it. I tell you, do not, do not commit murder. You who have had anger in your heart. Where do you think that comes from? The problem is not the behavior. The problem is the heart. Just adding religion to your life can treat the symptom, but not cure the problem. And Paul reminds us of the, of the significance of this, that you can't conjure up a, a, a list, but rather the, the law's intentions, which didn't come until the time of Moses. The law's intentions, it tells us in, in Galatians chapter 3, um, especially verse, verse 24 and 25, the law's intentions were, was to operate as a tutor. In, in order for us to recognize that we can't fulfill this and what we really need is a Savior, Jesus in fact, when you study the idea of the old covenant, the old law given in the Old Testament, there was this promise in Jeremiah 31 that, that, that our hearts were of stone and it needed to be made of flesh and be made new. In Jeremiah 31, 31, God promised us there would be a, a new covenant and we would walk in that new covenant by the power of the Spirit that he would renew in us his life and that we could live for God's glory, being connected to him, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. That's why when you read in John chapter 5, Jesus tells us he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. You can't remove an old covenant until you've fulfilled it. And, and Jesus came. There's two ways to, 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 to remove an old covenant. One is to, to do what it commands and to die under it. And, and Jesus did both of those. He fulfilled it perfectly, and he died for it in order to give us a new covenant in Christ. That we could walk in the Spirit, as Galatians 5 says. And it goes on to say, and against such things, there is no law as we walk in the Spirit. Verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. What, what he's reminding us of, if, if you walk in the old covenant, the expectation is to fulfill all of it. That's why James chapter 2 verse 10 says, he, he who is guilty of one sin is guilty of all of it. All of it. Because a covenant is about being faithful. And if you can't fulfill all of it, then you can't fulfill any of it. It reminds us of maybe the covenant to marriage. It's been said that a wife who is 85% faithful to her husband is not faithful at all. And it's the same thing with your covenant to Christ. The expectation in the old covenant is that we would fulfill it, but yet we find that it is an impossibility. Only Jesus himself was able to do it in order to bring us to this place of a new covenant in him. And so in verse 24, it goes on and says this. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And what he's acknowledging to the religious leaders, hypocrisy is repulsive. And when we claim 
to try to live this perfect religious life as if we're the answer, as if we've got it all together, people can see through that. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus gives the seven woes to the Pharisee. It's like Jesus decided to get in a fist fight with a hornet nest here. And he goes to the religious leaders of his day. I can imagine the audacity of Christ, the boldness he has in, in doing this. In chapter 23 and verse 27, he says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are, are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. The outside beautiful. Religion does that. Just makes you look good. Puts on the mask, you know, performs, does the part. But then on the inside, completely dead. <clears throat> there was a story I heard of a, of a sister who had to go to a pet store for her brother who had surgery. He wasn't able to, to walk and make it there, but he needed his sister to go there because, well, his snake needed a mouse. And uh, she, she talked about how horrific this experience was for her. And she said, you know, the, the worst part, it, it wasn't going through the line and picking the juiciest, best mouse for the snake. The, the worst part wasn't even when I checked out with the clerk and the clerk tried to sell me the vitamins to uh, increase the longevity of the life of the snake. That, that wasn't even the worst part. She said, the worst part was when they gave me the, the mouse in a box and I, I was taking it home. And on the outside of the box, it said, thank you for giving me a new home. It, it is important before the Lord to let your soul be disrupted, disturbed. Where is it really? Because if I were just to give you some self-help talk to pat you on the back and tell you, you guys are great, right? Like, I, I want you to be great. I do. And I think we've got a great church. I think it's a fantastic church in the way we serve the Lord and live for him. But before God, we don't come to impress him. We come to be impressed by him. Because he's good and he forgives and he heals and he puts the brokenness of her past behind us that we can move forward in, in his glory, not our own and his forgiveness, not my achievement. And this is where, where, where Paul is leading us in, the, in this story. Hypocrisy drives people away. I think maybe you've learned Christianity that way. Maybe, maybe you teach Christianity to your kids that way, that uh, this, this idea of just simply morality, if you treat God like some system of morality, you know, it's okay. Just try to do the best you can. To the next generation, they just don't see it as necessary. But if you see the importance of Jesus relationally, and you connect to him knowing he is alive and real and desiring to know you and to forgive you and, and, and to shape you into something new. Hypocrisy drives people away and we don't need hypocrisy, but rather what we need is humility. Humility. Do you know one of the ways to examine your heart to see, is my, is my life really, does it walk with that humility before Christ? Now, one of the ways to maybe examine that, and this isn't the most the perfect way, but I'll tell you, it's, it, it's to look at your life to see, is, is there genuine praise and, and thanksgiving and rejoicing before God? That genuine praise, rejoicing, thanksgiving acknowledges who you were apart from Christ and now recognizes who you are because of Christ. And, and you know it wasn't you. It was this God who relentlessly pursued you by giving his very life that you could find freedom in him. Verse 25. For circumcision, I uh, should give it to you on the screen, huh? 
for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Um, Verse 26, so if a, a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised by keeps the law will, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but breaks the law. For, he says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and, and physical. Let me, let me just stop right there. Um, verse 28, obviously the theme of this is circumcision, if you didn't catch that. He says this, says this 10 times in five verses, so let's have an uncomfortable conversation for a minute. Um, verse 28, as he's talking about this, one of the things he, he acknowledges here, he says, for, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. This word Jew, I, I, I want to just focus on the significance of this for a moment. You know, when you read the Old Testament, this word Jew doesn't really appear till later in the Old Testament. Um, Previous to this, God's people, chosen people, would have been referred to as Israel. And that story comes from Jacob, right? He wrestled with God. This idea of the name Israel means wrestles with God. And, and, And he refuses to stop wrestling with God until God blesses him. And you know the story of Jacob, he goes on and has 12 sons. And those sons become the tribes of Israel. And, and Israel, they, they choose to then, uh, in, in their history, as they begin to grow into a, a nation, a people group, they, they eventually have the civil war that they split in 10 tribes, go to the north of Israel, and two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, go to the south. And the 10 tribes to the north never follow a godly king. And they're carried off into captivity by the Assyrians, never to be heard from again. But the southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, Judah was considered the, the larger of the tribes, so their identity became Judah, or as we say today, Jew, short for Judah. As you read the latter half of the Old Testament, you start to see, rather than the word Israel used, they start to use the word Judah, reflecting the, the people that were left after the Assyrian captivity. The reason I, I highlight this for you is because I think for us, this is reflective in some ways that of the Christian life. Jesus has a lot of fans, but not as many followers. And there are people that might wear the label of Christian, but never really belong to Christ because they never got to that place where their soul was disrupted, disturbed, to really reflect before a holy God who they were. And to surrender that heart to this king, to allow their soul to be forgiven and healed and for God to make something new. When I think about the tribes of Israel and and those that were carried away, I I relate it to the idea of, of Christianity and wondering where our hearts are before the Lord. Lots of people can carry the facade of being a Christian. But is your heart genuine before him? There once was a political leader who made free use of Christian vocabulary. 
He talked about the blessing of the Almighty and, and Christian confessions, which would become the pillars of this new government he wanted. He assumed the earnestness of responsibility. He handed out pious stories to the press, especially to the church papers. He showed his tattered Bible and declared that he drew the strength from, his, uh, from this great work. Scores of pious people welcomed him in as a man of God. Do you know his name? Adolf Hitler. Now, I will say historically, there are reasons to say, and Adolf, as he moved forward, did not claim the truth of Christianity. But he wore the religion. And guys, to me, that's concerning. In fact, I toyed with whether or not I even wanted to include something like this because that feels disgusting. A soul needs more than religion. A soul needs true transformation in Christ. A Jew is one inwardly. He goes on and says in verse 29, look at this. A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Uh, I, I like in this passage, he's using the idea of circumcision as an illustration, especially when you think first century and previous to this. I mean, could you imagine you're the first Jew and Jesus says, I want to set you apart. And you're like, how? How are you going to do this, God? And he says, even in the most intimate of settings, I want you to re remember who is above you, right? And go, okay, God, I'm up for this. I want to follow you. Okay, what do you want me to do? Go to the kitchen, <laughs> grab some scissors. We're going to play a little game, right? I don't want to go further than that. I don't want to create images in your mind here. But, but you know, like, you, I, I just think when, when that kind of decision is being made, you're going to, just, you're going to be extra careful and, and being certain that what you want to pursue in life is really what God is telling you here. Like, okay, God, let me just rethink this. Are you really who I think you are? Like, that is a serious commitment, right? And I think he's saying the same thing here. Right, but, but, but good news for you. He means this metaphorically, okay? So no one go home and perform self-surgery, right? But, but he's, he's, he's saying this by the spirit, not by the letter, right? That, that means don't, don't go do this physically. But he's, he's acknowledging there's something God wants to do in your heart. There is something God wants to do in your heart. And if you're not willing to let your soul be disturbed by the greatness of this God, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. This is if what God wants to do within the story of these first few chapters of, of Romans is to strip us all bare. Not, not just the irreligious people or the moral people, but also the religious people, the people that might assume they had it all together in comparison to the rest of the world. If anyone's okay, they might have thought we're okay. As if to say, what you need in life, is, it's not religion, but relationship. You need the spirit of God to make you new. You need the Spirit of God to transform you. And, and, and for us as a church, this becomes a monumental to us because what it says is, as God's people, we're not above anybody. But rather, we're below Christ and equal to everybody because of who he is. And, and at the same time, while we're brought to this position of humble, uh, humble place before the Lord and recognizing our sin before him, 
It also, as this story concludes, at least in this chapter today, it's saying to us, but you have, you're a people of incredible hope. Here's why. Because God didn't give up on you. God will not give up on you. In fact, God wants to do something new in you compared to anywhere and anything you've ever experienced. And it doesn't happen because of you. It happens because of him. You're not born into Christianity. You're reborn into Christianity because of the power of the Spirit. And if God's willing to do this for you, imagine as you continue this story as God's going to shape something great in your life when you see the, the goodness of God poured out into you and now this incredible identity that comes to us in the, in the rest of Romans, this, this beauty that Christ does in us. This is not something that you just keep with yourself. This is something you can share with the rest of the world, which is why William Carey, I think he said at, at, in his life, he's a great missionary to India, he said this, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. He's the father of modern missions, but when he thought about the greatness of what God had done in his life, he recognized that God was with him. And everywhere he went, he could be a reflection of his light, God's light in this world. And because of the presence of that God, great things could be done. Men, women, for you this morning, I hope you recognize the goodness of who that God is. This is not a place of just a self-help talk. This is a place where people in death come to life in Christ because of what he has done for us as we surrender ourselves to him. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.